Good evening, and welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I can't bear to let go of Halloween. You won't mind if I indulge myself for just a little bit longer, will you? After all, we all know what comes next. No, no, I'm not talking about Black Friday. That day has never quite lived up to its name in my estimation. I can't even bear to say it. No. Let's just agree not to think about that until December. Two hundred years ago, in 1816, an extraordinary thing happened. It was called the Year Without a Summer. Famine stalked the countryside, and people rioted for food in the cities, as unseasonably wintry weather caused catastrophic crop failures. And in a Swiss chateau on the shores of Lake Geneva, four friends were vacationing together, huddled by the fire, desperately trying to fight off the cabin fever that gripped them in the depths of that cold and dreary summer. The remarkable thing that happened? Frankenstein. In honor of the season, we have two stories inspired by that evening 200 long years ago. Our first story is by Dan Micklethwaite, a freelance writer based in the north of England. His most recent short fiction was featured in Unsung Stories and Flame Tree Publishing's Swords and Steam Anthology. His debut novel, The Less Than Perfect Legend of Donna Creosote, is shortlisted for The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize 2016. It'll be read for you by Benjamin Sperduto, a writer and history teacher based in Tampa, Florida. Jack of All Trades by Dan Micklethwaite The pulse of lightning, the kiss of life, the greening eyelids crackle open, the pickled eyeballs bulge and stare. The rank and asymmetric ears prick up at the sound of the creator shouting as he careens off down the hallway, half in triumph, half in fear. I've only gone and done it, he cackles. I've finally brought them back! Each whoop, each scream resounds throughout this wretched body, its tattered fibers and faulty bonds. They race along fused nerves and lymph, until they finally reach the brain, which, until recently, had belonged to a murderer, one Alfred C. Tommyknock, hanged not two weeks since on three counts of the crime. Of passion, the judge called it, but he himself knows they were premeditated, were deliberate and studious acts of revenge, that purest of reasons. He feels it stirring once more, in response to those pulses, feels it gabble and swirl in his gray matter again now, the urge to wreck ruin upon whatever dreg has brought him back to life. To pain. He turns his head, begins his search. But these eyes, these jellied little orbs, they'd formerly been the prized possession of an itinerant painter. J. F. Humdinger, Esquire, had been a semi-renowned portraitist, 
who survived mainly by taking occasional commissions from the wealthy, and augmenting these earnings where he could with seditious odalisks of their debutante daughters. His true aesthetic, however, the work he committed to canvas in the isolation of his garret, aired closer to futurism, the art of the machine. All the matter of the lab, therefore, the gleaming glass test tubes, the trembling dials, the polished steel struts and exposed copper wiring, it seems too perfect a composition to pass up, too brilliant and shocking and enticing a vision of what the coming century may hold. Can't we paint it? Please! The eyes beg of Alfred C. Tommy Brock's brain. We'll even score it on the floorboards with our fingers if we have to. Yet, the hands will simply not oblige, with either this artistic whim or with the brain's desire to throttle their remaker, to rip him, with delightful irony, limb from bastard limb. The right hand formerly belonged to one midshipman Simmons, and recalls only pulling on ropes and swabbing the decks, its palm duly calloused, its nails duly grimy, its fingertips barnacled with splinters and sores. If it has any answer to these pleas at all, it's only in the form of half-remembered shanties, extravagant curse words, and look, varshi blows. On the other hand, there's the preferred tool of a bare-knuckle boxer, one Doolin Joe Sabat, whose most famous endeavor had been to once last for three rounds with an adolescent baboon. This might have been more use, at least for Tommy Knox's purpose. But Joe's fist proves itself ornery and won't listen at all. Instead, in its own deep frustration, it swings down at the table, and as a result is swelling badly, at least one of the putrefying metacarpals already shattered with the blows. Ugh, it says. Ah, one syllable per punch. The murderer's rage is unabated. He wants to scream to bellow a threat down the halls of this unholy hospital, to call the resurrectionist to come and meet him, face to face, like a man. The tongue that's been sutured in between this jaw, however, was once owned by a drunkard, whose name even he'd forgotten by the night he tripped into a muddy ditch and drowned, but whose taste buds will never stop longing for liquor, and are too busy testing the air for medicinal whiskey, for surgical spirits, to be concerned with anything so trivial as letting forth a brutal yell. Alfred, then, will have to content himself with giving chase to his tormentor on foot, with kicking his tormentor's legs from under him, with standing on the scientist's throat, his skull, until the clever, and no doubt properly connected, brains spill out just like the filling from one of Mrs. Miggins' pies. These reanimated feet, alas, have other notions. The right one belonged to a concert pianist, Ernst Ravlos, who was celebrated for a little while in old Romania, but ended, like the best of them, in a paltry pauper's grave. As the creature lies there, his right hand thumping the steel of the table, his eyes entranced with the mechanistic scenery, this foot rocks back and forth in empty air, as though depressing the unicorda petal of a lime-lit baby grand. The left foot, meanwhile, was one of many burdens borne by a provincial village idiot, who, when he was called anything at all, was usually addressed as either, You there! Or, Get out of my sight! This appendage is clubbed, though, 
and made such getaways ungainly. The cruel laughter then invariably followed. The humiliation, he felt it. He collected the memory of it everywhere about him, stored it even in the fungal undergrowth that bloomed between his toes. It doesn't quite make words, and yet the essence of it carries. Alfred can sense it, all the way up in the skull. It jostles for attention with the shanties, and the sketch plans, and the boxer's brute grunts. And all of this, the hurts and griefs and disappointments of all these body parts, only combine to make him madder and madder. With the ears which do not rebel, he listens out for a trace of the man who'd renewed him, who must have taken him from the comfort and dark of the noose, but the corridors are silent. The grave-robbing git might have already escaped. No, Alfred tries to tell the other offcuts. We have to find him. We have to get moving. He applies whatever morbid energy he can muster, whatever contemptible threats he can recall, and... Eventually, after several more minutes, it's enough to sit the body upright and swing the legs over the side. The fallout from this collaboration is that the personalities of these alien appendages flood back to him more fully, traverse the nerves, the lymph canals, the clockwork passages of blood, leading to uncertainty of self, to even greater indecision, to something verging on distress. As the creature sits there, the southpaw takes notice of its changed orientation begins to swing out at the tiled wall instead. Low jab, rabbit punch, uppercut, hook, and the pianist's heel finds the floor whilst its toes keep a-tapping, and the right hand duly pantomimes, attending to the rigging whilst remembering the ditty about a whore from San Jose. Alfred tries to reel them in, but they are too distracted to be marshaled, and anyway, beneath them all he notes the noises of a sickly system the unmistakable, unstoppable workings of decay, the raggedy huffing of leathery lungs, the dulled and swaddled beating of a second-hand heart, which, it transpires, was once the core of a philosopher, a man of thoughts and theories, which, though different, might at least be the equal of the regenerator's own. These ideas reach the brain via the sagging, trembling jugular, as irregular pulses, a sanguinary morse. Why are we here again? it says. And are we here again? How can we be here if we have already once departed? Did we ever depart? Is there actually no end? Is there no true punishment? Is there no freedom? Alfred Tommyknock has had his fill already of this abstract wordy dross is working on a way to gag this metaphysic ticker, when suddenly, out of the ether, it says something that makes sense. I am tired. So very tired. And this thought, which pulses everywhere, proves to be a matter upon which they all agree. And, in agreement, another notion strikes, that they, these lost, mishandled souls, should no longer struggle against this ruin but rather welcome it, should do what they can to hurry it on. Because, after all, the man that did this to them must have had some purpose, and what could violate and usurp that purpose more than giving up the ghost again, proving without a shadow of a doubt that resurrection will not take. That what's dead is dead, what's past is past, and the natural order is not to be tested.
It is a well-planned revenge, just like Alfred prefers. Come on now, boys, the murderer tells them. Blow the man down, the midshipman sings. What is morality? questions the thinker. Can't I paint this first, the artist bemoans. Such beautiful music, the pianist whispers. Ugh, says the boxer, and swings hard for the jaw. That was Jack of All Trades by Dan Micklethwaite, as read by Benjamin Sperduto. Now, let's consider Victor's assistant, Igor. In Mary Shelley's original novel, there was no lab assistant at all. The mad hunchback dwarf may have first appeared on the screen as a nameless laboratory assistant in Fritz Lang's silent classic, Metropolis. Igor's appearance in the famous 1931 Boris Karloff Frankenstein put him forever into the story alongside Victor and his creature. Dwight Fry played him then, but the character's name was Fritz. He did not become Igor until he was played by Bela Lugosi in 1939's Son of Frankenstein. Our second story this evening considers that Igor was actually the brains behind Dr. Frankenstein's success. It comes to us from Liam Hogan, a London-based writer and winner of Quantum Shorts 2015 and the SciFest LA's Roswell Award 2016. He has been published at Daily Science Fiction, No Sleep Podcast, and a dozen anthologies besides. And we will be hearing another story from him here in the gallery in the near future. Find out more at happyendingnotguaranteed.blogspot.co.uk I, Igor By Liam Hogan Ice! The mad scientist cries. I need more ice! Dr. Victor Frankenstein dashes the empty bucket to the floor. The claim reverberates around the laboratory walls and would have opened the dead if the dead were that easily arrived. Card hands tear at his unruly mop of black hair as he staggers from the room. I'm not sure where he's going. Our ice comes from the chambers deep beneath us. But the cellar is my domain, and that is the way I, I go, prefer. I begin to clean up the god-awful mess his experiments create. Victor does not know what goes on beneath his feet. He does not think to ask how it is that we have ice in the height of summer. Not that 1816 is giving us much in the way of July, the days are dismal and grey, the nights unseasonably chilly, but not that chilly. He probably assumes we have a cold store down there packed with Lake Geneva ice during the winter months and well insulated. He does not pay attention to such details. 
That too is the way I prefer it. Our ice is freshly made from filtered spring water using a contrivance of bellows and compressed grasses and powered by a wind turbine. All my work. Occasionally, when the day is become, I have to crank the device manually for long hours until my misshapen body protests. But still I crank. There's a room below that must be kept frozen. The ice is a byproduct. There is plenty to spare for Victor's experiments. Not that it does him any good. Ice merely delays the decay. It can't prevent it, and it certainly can't turn foul-smelling brain mush back into firm, functioning flesh. This is an issue I too have battled with, and hopefully solved. If not, eh, then all my struggles have been for nothing. <sighs> A fool's errand. No better, no wiser than the good doctor's insipid insanity. That our goals appear aligned is no happy accident. I've long been guiding his research, his dreams, his madness. A textbook left open at the wrong page. An idle observation on the peculiar properties of a particular plant extract. The fool thinks his spectacular progress is all his own. In the reality, it too is a byproduct. A side effect of my needs. The right materials ordered at the right time. His purses of family gold exchanged for the corpses of condemned men, fresh from the gibbet. It serves another purpose. It keeps me in the background, invisible assistant to an increasingly eccentric master. In the tall shadows of his ridiculous frock coat, I hide my stunted frame, my club foot, my misaligned eyes. The left drifting wide as it refuses to cooperate. A sure sign of evil in these parts. And in Victor's melodramatic behavior, I hide my story. I am the devil that fell through the ice. The young child that was plucked, cold and lifeless from the waters, and then restored by another eccentric, one Alessandro Volta, experimenting with his metals and volatile acids on the shore of the lake. He attached virus to my head and to my feet. Und, so the wonder hall present, I twitched and wrenched up the lake's contents, gasping for breath. In truth, my life was already saved by them, when I was dragged from the lake, when I was manhandled in such a way as to force water from my lungs. The absence of my post was surely due to the ineptitude of those who tried to take it. Perhaps it was slowed by the icy conditions, weakened by five minutes of exposure, but tremulous it still beat. It is a useful fiction. That voltage pile secured me my position in Frankenstein's house, first as an inspirational curiosity, and then as his assistant. But the schwad is double-edged. My ill-formed body and miraculous revival have people crossing the road to avoid me, unwilling to shake my hand or to hold my gaze fearful of what demonic creature stares out from that wavered eye. There are only two people who have never looked upon me with either dread or disgust, as a bad luck omen, a freak. One is Victor.
who sees merely that I am useful to his ambitions, a piece of lab equipment that can be cursed and berated and blamed for every failed experiment. The other is Buzz, my wife, Olga, whose petite body lies frozen in the cellar. Her brain is kept separate, chilled but not frozen, in a specially crafted jar through which oxygen bubbles. It is suspended in a solution of quicksilver und Ergat und Besor, along with a half dozen rare und common plant extracts. A lengthy preparation that appears to supercharge the bane's ability to repair. Just one of many wonderful discoveries and innovations made over the three years since her untimely accident. The doctor's medical textbooks are proven close to useless, full of superstition with garish illustrations of organs that would be better suited in a pig, which is where they belong. With human dissection outward, a crippling blows for the advancement of science. Medicine regrettably lags behind the studies of gases, of electricity, of magnetism. That, so is only one of the reasons my progress has been so slow. Perhaps it would have been quicker if our positions had been reversed, if it was Olga who sifted the wheat from the chaff of knowledge, looking for rare nuggets of truth, and I was the one laid out on the cold stone slab below. She always was the true genius. It is her notebooks on flora and fauna, her musings on the nature of the universe, that have guided me more than any venerated professor from the universities and academies of Europe. And yet I wonder, would she have let me go? Would she instead have moved on with her life? used my memory as inspiration rather than as a rock to be clung to? Would, will, she thank me for what I do? And yet, how can I? How can I pass up the chance, however slim, to bring my fiery love back? Especially as it was I, Igor, who in the heat of the moment struck the fatal blow. I am done tidying up Victor's most recent experiments and go in search. So offer him the balm of encouragement and a gentle nudge to order in more supplies of a rare bark from India, whose properties Olga discovered while Victor still wore shorts. I look into the library, the paper strewn across every surface, the books in teetering piles, musty and empty of life, his study is in an even worse state, but just silent. In growing consternation, I climb to the roof, where tall metal spikes spears the gloomy skies, waiting for the right conditions to channel atmospheric electricity. I look over the side of the ramparts, to the unkempt gardens below, wondering if his latest failure has driven him to the desperate final measures. In the distance over the rain-shouded woods, I glimpsed the square face Zvila Diodati, rented for the summer by Dr. Polidori. Victor visited him and his friends one evening a week ago, and came back buoyed with new enthusiasm. Perhaps he is gone again, to tell them of his fears, his hopes, and to be humored in exchange. 
they are too polite, these English poets and writers. I descend, thinking to follow him there, anxious to confirm his very being, crucial as he is to my plans, only to find him back in the laboratory, once again stooped over the body of the latest criminal to incur the local magistrate's ire. He spins round at my approach, needle and suture in his hand. Genius, he calls. I'm a genius. Master, I ask uncertainly. I've done it, Igor. I know I have. At long last, I've done it. He seems more optimistic than I would have thought possible. And I wonder if he's once again been sampling the opiates. The brain he is working on is a week dead, at least. Plus, it's the brain of a criminal, for only a hanged man's body can be claimed by the doctors and surgeons. It is perhaps a good thing that it will never again know the spark of life. Thieves, beggars, and murderers. Not the sort that deserves a second chance. Rotten in both senses. And then, I see the rotten grey mush still in its metal tray. Warm now, and oozing. Discarded, and forgotten. Dread gnaws at my stomach. But, Victor, I stutter. My tongue no longer fully under my control. But, but what? There. No time to lose, Igor. Raise the platform and let us hope for a storm. Imbecile. The man is deranged. If zapping a hundred million volts through human tissue can do anything other than cremate it, just as it has a dozen times before. But his lunacy loosens my numbed tongue. Where, where did you get the brains? I finally managed to shout, over the din of the chains winching the bench to the rafters. From a jar, he exclaims, matching my volume. A jar in the cellar. And my voice and senses are slammed back into oblivion. I went to get more ice, the butler explains, bright and cheery, and discovered an experiment I'd quite forgotten about. Amazing! Genius! I'll have to consult my notes to work out how I did it. But but the brains are the best possible state, the healthiest I've ever seen, almost alive. My blood runs cold as I see the precious glass jar. Zaban, my ogre, as in, smashed beneath the workbench. For a moment, I look and almost hope to see her fine mind equally shattered. But no. The jar has been carelessly smashed after it was emptied. My darling wife, it is her brain the pool has just finished sewing into the cadaver. Is this my fault? A combination of my hubris and my doubts? I have too long delayed reuniting her mind and body. Fearful of failure and perhaps even more fearful of success. Her brain, saturated in its rejuvenating elixir, the kickstart regeneration of the cells of any body into which it is inserted. Of that, I have no doubt. Is not Frankenstein's mansion overrun by mice? Crippled playthings of the feral cats that once stopped its corridors, now miraculously restored to full vigor? Still I delayed. Still I procrastinated. I was not ready, I told myself. I needed more research, more trials, more, more time to work out how. 
how to apologize. Und so it is the idiot. Victor Frankenstein, und not I, who has taken the final step. I cringe at the thought of his insensitive hands, connecting up the delicate arteries and nerves, at his total disregard for sterile working conditions, at the unavoidable fact that he has put my wife's magnificent mind in the hulking body of a criminal? A male criminal? <sighs> I sigh. Deep and low, resigned. It is done now. The process has begun. Fortunately, or perhaps unfortunately, the evening sky is full of drizzle and not of thunder and lightning. He will probably assume his latest experiment another failure, a crushing blow to his delicate ego. Will he attempt to dispose of the evidence? Or will he leave it lying there? slowly mending itself until it, he, she, awakens. That is all it would take. Not electricity, or more surgery, or more elixir. Time always was the greatest healer. Left alone in a few days, my ogre will surely wake. She will not find me here. I cannot stay. To try and justify my actions of self-defense, I will disappear, just as the feral cats disappeared. I will leave Frankenstein with his creation, and I do hope, for Victor's sake, that Olga has lost at least a little of the fearsome temper she was so rightfully famous for. That was I, Igor, by Liam Hogan, read by Byron. Byron is a disembodied voice who is discovered living in a hand-carved art cave in northern New Mexico. A bit of business here before I send you on your way. I regret to inform you that for the time being our submission period is closed, but it will open again in the new year and hopefully with a better pay rate for the authors. If you would like to help in that regard, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash gallerycurious. Our server costs are going up as our audience is expanding. While we will never charge anyone to listen to our story broadcasts, there are a lot of expenses involved to keep it up and running. We post the bloopers and outtakes on the Patreon page, though sometimes I rather wish we would not. This episode was produced in October of 2016, and it was distributed under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. I do thank you for joining me again this evening, but now it is time for me to go out and have my Halloween fun. Visit us again next time at the Gallery of Curiosities.